From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. And a very warm welcome aboard the pirate ship, the Reeve Gauche, and to the Captain's Table podcast, brought to you by Are You Not Entertained and our great friends at Howden Insurance Brokers. I'm Giles Morgan. I'm the captain. I'm not actually a captain, or indeed a pirate, but a vague ancestor of my family, Captain Henry Morgan, actually was one, and his family all came from Wales as well. For 30 years, I've been lucky enough to travel all over the world, as a boring old marketing suit in the sports industry, which included having arguably the best job in the world as head of sponsorship at HSBC. Along that journey, I got to rub shoulders with the good, the bad, and the ugly. And having ditched the pinstripe suit for breeches and the red waistcoat and cutlass that befits a pirate captain, I set out to create this podcast where every month I simply ask my special guests in the world of sport to share their own personal memories of being a sports fan and how that passion has affected and shaped their lives. Well, ahoy there, my hearties, and welcome back to the Captain's Table podcast. It's good to be back. It's been six months, the boat's been in dry dock. We also had to have a full refit because we have a new sponsor. A new sponsor, Howden Insurance Brokers, have decided to put their fabulous logo up on my sale, so we're, we're back. And uh, it's brilliant to have them here because they filled my, my treasure chest full of gold coins, which is pretty helpful, but also a cracking new policy for the ship, which um, means we'll be safe for a little while longer. I've also decided to change the show, which is in front of a live audience, which is going to be kind of interesting and a bit of a pressure. I was doing it on Zoom, as many of you know, for a long time, but here we are. So the coughs and splutters that you might hear over the next half an hour are from this new crew. Um, It's a ragtag bunch, I have to say, but we'll try and get through it. But they're joining me for a slap-up dinner um, afterwards. I think the chef, Ryan, is, is cooking up something very special, which is good because my last chef was fired. Anyway, enough of this tosh. Um, to the business in hand. My guest this month is really one of the biggest and most important people in the global game of golf. Guy Kinnings is the Ryder Cup director and deputy CEO of the DP World Tour, which in old money is the European Tour. He's been involved in the game of golf for around about 30 years. He's actually a lawyer, but I don't know if that worked out so well for him. So he joined IMG, sort of fell around those offices for a while until he ended up in the player management team in about 1991, and he became a client manager. And my God, when you look at the listening of people that, that Guy has worked with, it's, it's impressive. I think it started with, with Sandy Lyle, and then Colin Montgomery, Thomas Bjorn, Ian Wisnam, Nick Faldo, Luke Donald, Paul Casey, as well as a couple of also rounds, uh, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, um, Gary Player, and being quite involved with, with a certain Tiger Woods. But in 2018, he, he managed to get away from IMG and joined the European Tour as the deputy CEO. Um, and the Ryder Cup director, critically, is probably the flagship event 
really of the game of golf globally. And very quickly, he then became chief commercial officer, just picking up more titles that is, frankly, um, healthy for anyone. So he's in charge of basically making golf rich and famous, and particularly dealing with golf as it went through the, the, the pandemic. So that's Guy, and um, I think I can hear his elfin footsteps up on the gangplank. So let's welcome him to the captain's table. Guy, welcome to, to, to the table. It's a big oak table sort of thing. Um, make yourself at home. And just be aware of there are pets and dogs. There's a parrot called uh, John, in fact. And there's sort of, it's the cat's crew. But we've also, as you can see, the rest of the crew have come in here to, to look at you. And I hope they behave. But they opened the bar up about half an hour ago, so I don't know. But the first thing is we need to get you a drink. And regular listeners will know it used to be Loch Lomond whiskey was the drink of choice for my guests. But my chief steward, Duncan Fraser, will scuttle along and get you whatever you want. So what are you going to have? Well, Duncan tells me some of that fine vintage champagne he's been serving throughout is still available. So I would, uh, that would be just perfect. Thank you. Very good. Here he comes. A bit of a limp, but he's, um, <laughs> he's doing fine. Well done, Duncan. Kicked Don't drop captain, it. captain, obviously. That's very kind. Thank well you. done. Guy, I'm not really interested in your job all that much, but I am interested in... Never were. But, but I am very interested in where you've got to where you are, and particularly your own love of sport, which I know is a big thing. Tell us a little bit, where were you brought up? Who are you? Um, I was brought... I think I, brought, I grew up in a town that was voted, um, I think, three times in four years the dullest town to grow up in the country. Uh, Shrewsbury in Shropshire, known for its flower show, which I think probably tells it all. Um, but I originally come from a little village just outside of, uh, of Wolverhampton. So my formative years were spent in and around the black country. And does that accent pervade in, in any part of your... Well, as you see, I've, I've obviously tried to drive it out of me, <laughs> but I did work on a... Uh, on, 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 the, on, the, on the shop floor uh, in a welding factory in Willenhall, um, and I was dispatched by my father, told, go and spend time on the, on the shop floor and get with the... And the first guy I was with, we were put, making lockers for a RAF camp, and he greeted me in the morning, he said, yow, new year, I'm yow. <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, it's about, it's about 11.15, I think, actually. And he was... So we went on from there. No, I've, the accent is, only comes out occasionally when I return to the area. I don't know Shropshire all that well, but... Um, sport is everywhere in this country and around the world. What was your earliest, earliest sporting memory growing up? <sighs> I mean, obviously, family. It was a big decision. You either it was either it was either Wolves or Villa, and I was very much a Wolves fan and grew up with Wolves as part of the family. Although I'm told there was a distant uncle that may have played for Villa, but we try and forget that. Um, but going to going to Molyneux, I distinctly remember going as part of the glorious Golden Army from from Wolves to go and watch then win the League Cup final in 74. Goals by, I believe, Richards and Hibbert, the legends that they were. Um, and I remember that one. But also in cricket, my dad had this incredibly wonderful but misplaced sense that I might be a talented cricketer, which clearly wasn't the case. But he dispatched me off to Edgbaston and Neuro to go and be coached by the magnificent Bob Willis and then by Basil D'Oliveira, which the look of confusion and disappointment on their faces when they saw what was going on in the net. But I do remember going to those and just thinking, wonderful place. So was your father the sort of main influence of getting you into oh, sport? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. He was 
was, he, was, uh, he was a good footballer. He'd been in the Navy at the end of the war. He'd done boxing to avoid having to do long distance running. Um, and he continued his love of football and, and anything, actually. I mean, to this day, my proudest moment was playing in some you know, awful cricket match at school. And he pulled up to watch, and I somehow flailed at one, out the long off, smack, huge dent in his bonnet. I've never seen anyone so happy to have the car dented. He was over the moon. <laughs> and who are your own early sporting heroes? You reference Wolves, but who, who were the posters on your bedroom wall? If you're allowed to say that, I don't know, but... I think so, yes. I think we're talking sporting heroes. Um, I, in the same way that of, of, I remember um, just as a very young boy being shaken awake and made to come downstairs and watch on a little grainy black and white when Neil Armstrong stepped out when I was about six. I do also remember, and Dad, you know, and there were, there were great sporting occasions, like I said, you know, Wolves wins and this and going to Twicken and whatever. But for me, being made to wake up and come and watch Thriller in Manila, The Rumble in the Jungle, watching Ali Fraser, Ali Foreman, and then watching Ali do what he did on the Parkinson show, whatever else. He, Ali, big poster up there. Now, obviously, that was then. I suspect as I sort of eventually graduated when I discovered I was terrible at everything else, into sort of in the golfing world, for me, that would have been would have been Seve. And I've been incredibly lucky to work with some of the guys you mentioned, you know, and some have changed the game. Like Arnie, you know, first kind of brought it blue collar. Tiger changed it forever and always will. But there was something about Seve, biggest personality I've ever been in a room with. And when you go back to football, I mean, you, you're a Wolves man. Are you still a Wolves man? Did you oh, change? Yeah. No, you, no, no, you've no, never no, moved? No, 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 no. I do believe. Born in the Royal Hospital, Wolverhampton. I do believe you have Is to Is there a stick... blue plaque up there? No, I believe I've lasted longer than the hospital. I think <laughs> I believe it's been I think it's reduced to rubble. But no, I, I've always believed that you have to stick with it, which has led to some fallow years. Um, but, you know, you've got to stick with it. And you move to London and everyone goes, well, you know, you're going to go meet Chelsea or Fulham. But no, I, I stuck with Wolves. Oh, good for you. And you travel all over the world. You've been in the sports industry for a very, very long time. Um, and, and you are one of the most travelled people I know. Um, do you get to go to, to sporting stadium and uh, to go to the events that you want to from time to time? And in which case, what is your favourite sporting stadium? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting one because, and I've listened to, you know, you've asked people these questions. And, you know, for me, I remember going to, going to Lord. I mean, I, I go to Lords. I love Lords. I mean, there's just something about going to the first day of a test at Lords. I love Centacle, Wimbledon, Twickenham. <laughs> I remember starting going when, you know, for varsity match watching... Oxford gets thumped by Mr. Hastings, who almost single-handedly, with a few others who joined in. But for me, and it's not quite a stadium, and I'm slightly biased, and it's part of the reason that I did the job, or moved to the job at the tour, there is, for me, something about the first tee on, at a Ryder Cup, which isn't a stadium, but if it's built the right way, and Edward Kitson's here, who, who has built most of them for the last few years, what was built there in Paris with sort of 10, 15,000 fans and they're well-behaved, terribly nice, well-behaved golf fans who suddenly, for one event, begin to behave badly and become football fans and do chants and, you know, you've got Big Macs, we've got Little Mac and, you know, all of the stuff and the guys swing and it's woo. And what was built particularly for that first tee in Paris was just unbelievable. And the atmosphere there, and they just, and they just discovered the thunderclap. So everyone did the thunderclap. 
And I remember standing on the first tee, you know, I could, I, literally wide-eyed. I've started the job a month before I'm on the first tee. You know, as an agent, kept well away, nowhere near that. And I'm standing there thinking, this is just amazing. And some guys were, you know, all teeing off. And, but for some reason, Rory was standing there. And there was a gap. And someone said, we've got to do the thunderclap. So I said to Rory, come on, come on. You know. And he, out he went. And I remember him, he stood there. And there was just this, you know, this huge bank of people. And one guy, and he just stood there, and he went... At which point, suddenly, 15,000 people turned in. It was unbelievable. And you could see him come off, and he went, that's why I play the Ryder Cup. Fantastic. And and when you um, think about your own sports viewing when you're not working, do you prefer being in the pub with mates? Do you like being at at a stadium or there live or, or do you just like being at home with a bottle of red just I mean genuine question how do you enjoy your sport most I, I'm, I'm incredibly lazy I mean I, I enjoy all of the above so for me actually in the pub with the boys I mean I remember being in a bar in France watching when Beckham scored that free kick in the last minute to get us into the World Cup I hope 70 Frenchmen, because we were plastered <laughs> by the time we did it. So that was wonderful. Equally, I remember watching England when, win the, the Rugby World Cup when Johnny popped it over with my two little lads in there, you know, because I, was, I obviously wasn't going to go pub early with them, wouldn't do that. Uh, and they're there in their rugby shirts, and yeah, just unbelievable. And then went out in the streets, and they were kissed and by lots of beer, swilling beer guys who'd been in the pub. But there is something about being actually there you know, kind of in, in the stadium. And, and there are just some moments there which, you know, you just, you'll never forget unless you've been there. I, I viewed your career a lot. We've worked together a lot o- over the years and you're known as a steely, steely man. Of course. Um, but there may be a chink of emotion there when you're not having to deal with clients as you used to do. Have you ever cried at, at a sporting occasion? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, for me, you know, when I remember when... Botham's ashes when he heading Lee. I mean, it was, uh, that was all too much. I was a wash. I mean, got close with Stokes when he did his thing. Being there when guys achieve, and you've worked with a client for a long while, uh, and they achieve something amazing, and it's winning a major or whatever else. But actually, being there with with Monty in, at Celtic Manor in ten, and Thomas in Paris in eighteen, and you know, seeing him even when I thought we were going to win, and the tension on his face, and when that happens, that was magical. But in terms of crying, and it's a different sort of sporting occasion, the one that I really did cry at was, was Seve's funeral. And I think for any of us who grew up in Europe watching that, you know, he transformed European golf. When the Europeans joined in 79, it was Seve. And he was this huge, charismatic, extraordinarily complex, wonderful man. And we lost him way too soon. And, and I knew him and knew the family, never worked with him, but was, went over for the funeral. And I cried. Everyone cried. But the only thing that kind of saved us was I remember sitting. I was in the airport flying out there. And one of the guys from Five Live, I knew, phoned me and said, you're going to Seve's funeral. Can we have a few words? And I said, yeah, absolutely. But you're really speaking to the wrong person. And I was sitting next to Billy Foster. Uh, and I said, you should speak to Billy. Billy, long-time caddy of Seve's. You called him the El Grand Seigneur. And Billy was there. And I said, I'll put Billy on. I had failed to spot that Billy had done some sort of event the night before and had a big night and was clearly not feeling quite as good as he might have done. <laughs> Didn't spot this. Billy's there, and I said, Billy, five, five, on we go. 
And so Billy goes, and they go, you know, how do you feel about this? And he's very serious. He said, oh, it'd be terrible, sad, losing the great man, whatever. Blah, blah, blah. He said, but I had, a, I had a dream last night. And I said, I'm thinking, ooh, what's this? And it's going to be a lovely, stirring moment. He said, I had a dream last night, and I was watching this, and, they, and I'm in the church, and down comes the, the coffin. And they put the coffin down, and they all stand back, and then the lid, it creaks, creaks open, and a ball bounces out. <laughs> And it bounces down the aisle, and it goes over the road, over the fence, to about six feet on the hole over there, because that said you can get up and down from anywhere. <laughs> and it was such a lovely story. And we got there, and we, were, we turned up at the house, and it was a scene. You know, everyone, you've lost Sevy, all the kids in the village holding three irons up. And the one person who you can imagine was just inconsolable was Ollie Chema, Lasbal, you know, we all love. And he was inconsolable. And I said to Billy, pick your moment, which Billy didn't often do. But I said, pick your moment, tell him that story. It was the only time I think Ollie stopped crying all day and it made him laugh. But it was, it was only, only Billy could manage it. Let's take that away. That's a, that's a, that's a lovely story and very classic of, of Billy. Um, you and I, let's imagine we're going to Twickenham Stadium and it's England versus Wales. So we are pitched against each other. And Wales are perhaps 8-0 up at half time. And I magnificently say to you that I'm going to buy you lunch and maybe a pint at half-time. What is your half-time snack of choice? Well, if we were 8-0 down to Wales, I think it may have just been entirely liquid lunch um, <laughs> but to get through the pain of that, and particularly if you're there. Um, but um, I think I am I, I obviously tempted by pork pies, whatever, but I'd love a Scotch egg. And also because there's a theme developing here, but I won't do it because gavel. I do love a scotch pie as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can find those. And I can find those. Yeah, I thought you might. Go. And you've travelled around the world. You've been to many events, particularly in golf. Is there an event that you've not been to that's still on your, on your bucket list? Yeah, I've been so lucky. Um, that I would love to do a Super Bowl. I've never done one of those, and I would love to do that. But there is one probably above all that I would love to do, and I would love to do... New Year's Day, MCG, Ashes. I'd been to, I went to the ground. They did a World Cup of golf. And um, they, they did the reception there. And I went and I looked at all the seats and the members thing and thinking about what it was like in Lords, and found, without doubt, the best loo anywhere in the world. So went to the loo, and there's a little window that runs along like that. So as you stand there, you look out onto the ground. Perfect. Which was as good as it gets. So I would, that for me, the atmosphere there, proper, okay, close. So MCG, yeah. an ashes test. And again, you've been privileged enough to meet and work with, in your case, and some of the real greats of sport. Oh. Is there a sporting hero that you never met, alive or dead, that you would like to have done? I, I did, I, I was in a group that met Ali at one of the uh, Ryder Cups, but he was not well. He was not the Ali that I'd watched on Michael Parkinson. And although it was an amazing moment for me, I would have loved to have met him. When he was advertising Birds I Called Pounders, that, that era. I was thinking of higher points in his career, <laughs> but, but that one, obviously, any food endorsement I know always appeals to you. So um, if that indeed was his calling, yeah, I'm, I've got to question his management, <laughs> really, once he did that. So I'd love to have met him then. And I guess, other than that, um, you know, I was really lucky. But my hero from, from um, for, in footballing, when I was a Wolves fan, whilst I grew up in the Richards Dugan era, Billy Wright was a one-club man. 
he married a Beverly sister, which was terribly glamorous in Shropshire in those days. <laughs> but, but he'd retired before I ever, before I ever um, you know, had seen him play. But I got to meet him. I'd love to have met him at the ground. I'd love to have met Bradburn as well, I think, probably, yeah. or Bobby Jones. Did you ever meet Shane Warne, who's obviously the... the I did. Just been I taken had. from us? He, yeah, and, and it, tragically, because he was just so... I mean, as a, as a huge cricket fan. I mean, you know, never forget the ball of the century. But he used to come and play in the Dunhill. And I remember sitting there one evening, and we'd gone to the, to the, to the, to the pub, the Jigger, at the end of the Old Course Hotel. And I went and had, I was having a few beers and had dinner with, I think I was with Lee, but it was certainly with Beefy and with Shane. And it's just one of those moments where you go, I'm not actually gonna say anything, I will just listen. And the, oh my God, the stories. And he was, because he, he was, as this is what's so annoying about all these sportsmen, they're all so good. They may play something else, but you know what? I've stopped playing now, so I'm going to pick up golf. Oh, I'm immediately a four handicapper. I mean, he was really, really good. Um, but he was also just, oh, fantastic fun. And the way he and Beefy just, it was brutal. Let's, let's talk about your golf and, and the sports that you have been so much part of. Um, do you play? I do. I love it. And I um, constantly astonish people that I actually work in the game of golf. The look of surprise when I swing, I think they think I'm joking. And I have to go, no, no, this is really how I swing. So, as you know, if, you, if I could have soaked up a swing by osmosis, I've been close to the greatest swings ever. <laughs> but that hasn't happened. So, no, I absolutely love it, really love it. Try not to play it sober. Um, try not to take it terribly seriously or count. But I, I do love playing. I love playing with the family, playing with mates. I, I can't, I struggle to take it too seriously. Having watched all these wonderful clients of mine where a missed putt is the end of the day and you're like, a missed putt? <laughs> so 17 <laughs> windows are broken, I'd be more worried. You um, have played in pro-ams, you've, you've been around golfers, but and I don't necessarily mean a golfer. Is there someone you've ever been on a, on a tee box with you've been genuinely really nervous? That it's, it's, I ask this of the pro golfers, and it's inevitably presidents that they've played golf with. But I wonder if there's someone that you've been almost intimidated by because of their own presence, whether who they may be or, or their golf. I've had a couple of, of, of golfers that had that effect, and I've had a couple of, of guys who were non-golfers, but they were at a golf event. So, I, I, in fact, I was so bad that I played in the last pro-am with Tom Watson before he retired. I actually wasn't playing with him. I was Do playing. There's a connection. Oh, definitely. No. So we, I was playing with Retief, who I'd, I'd managed, and Tom was playing with someone else, and we went out. And I remember early on in the round, I hit the terrible duff. And he came and he went, Guy, you've just got to aim to hit the little ball before the big ball. <laughs> and he, he was just fantastic and whatever. But I remember standing, and I may even have been with you, and a senior board from, from HSBC. But on the first tee, you've got Watson, you've got player. Golfing gods, and you, you were up, it was you and me, and I think it was a senior HSP, and there was Peter Dawson. And I'm standing there thinking, oh God, 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 I have to swing in front of them, and I'm meant to know what I'm doing, it's awful, awful, awful. And Peter, and it was at Royal St. George's, and he was really worried, it had been a really hot summer, and he was really worried that the rough was not growing enough. So we were standing chatting, and he said, you know, I've got to make sure the rough grows for the open, it's got to be challenging and whatever else. And he points, Somewhere over in the, on the left, way out of sight, in the middle distance, a little man spraying, sprinkling water. Well, all I know is my drive, he had to duck 
to avoid my drive. <laughs> and there was just this look, and your guy from HSBC, I think it was Sandy or someone, just went, they really should let you get out more. <laughs> hung my head in shame. So you play a bit of golf, and you know and have worked with some of the best players in golf. Whether it's pros or just amateurs or other people, what's your dream? You're a captain of a golf team, and you get three picks to play golf with anywhere in the world. Who's, it, who's in that? Who's the three? Well, as, and I was going to say, for me, I would eliminate golfers because I've been lucky enough to play with some really good ones, and most of them have been absolutely joyous and forgiving and whatever else. Thomas Buell, my old buddy, did at one stage after about five holes go, tell you what, keep your ball in your pocket, just putt. <laughs> I thought helpful advice, but I wouldn't do that, nor would I want to play with my sporting heroes because they're also incredibly good, that even if they haven't played golf, they pick it up. So for me, and, and this was one of the guys who... Uh, uh, you know, uh, I would have loved to have played with because my other love is, is, is movies and film. Um, I, would, I would have Connery, because obviously he is, he was the greatest Bond, and a, and a good golfer. Um, I think I'd have to have Robert Redford because he was the Sundance Kid, which is also one of my favourites. But the one that I, w- w- which astonished me, because I was used to watching, you know, these film stars turning up and playing in these great events and you'd watch them and they were all very good and you know Samuel L. Jackson, Jackson's got a hell of a swing Michael Jordan can play beautifully it was when, and I was in this office this guy walked in and everyone in the office is like, it's a funny little old guy who's come in to you know, sign up and I'm looking going, oh my god it's Dennis Hopper <laughs> Dennis Hopper, easy rider you know, what, how's he alive <laughs> even to be doing it? It'd be like Keith Richards turning up. You'd be like, how on earth are you doing And there he was, and no one knew who he was. And I'm like, do you know who this guy? And he was absolutely delightful and went and played it. And all I was thinking was, how has he gone from Easy Rider via Waterworld, um, <laughs> not one of his finest moments, um, to playing golf in the dungeon? And he looked pretty good. So, oh God, I would love to. Okay. I'd love for him to tell what he remembered of the 60s, which probably would only take a couple of minutes, yeah. if you that. Move, you move on to the second. I'm, I'm desperate to get on to you managing players, because you've managed some players, and I've got to know some of them. Some of them even become on, on the podcast. But who was your trickiest ever client? Who was the nightmare? Well, as you know, I'm, that's a, an incredibly unfair and, and, and difficult question. And I know you say it expecting me <laughs> to pick on some of my entirely relaxed and easygoing chums like Monty or Thomas or whatever else. Um, and they were a joy to work with, absolute joy. Um, the guys who actually ended up being some of the most mischievous were some of my South African clients. And I have enjoyed working with Ernie. I worked with Gary. But there was a guy, I'm sure I don't know people, but, but a guy called John Bland who was a lovely guy, I inherited him, I was managing him on tour, and he used to phone the office and go, put me through to the man with half a brain. <laughs> and every time, they get me, guys, John for you, I'm like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, But the, the South Africans are always the best. I mean, you know, or Southern Africans. Tony Johnson, who I never actually managed, but he's just the funniest man alive, if you listen to his commentary. And he's the guy who did, and I'm sure everyone's heard the story, he did the wonderful Seve one when he and Seve are playing together in the Desert Classic, and they walk down, and there's a ball out in the fairway, and there's a ball right behind a palm tree, and it's completely unplayable. And Seve goes up to it, and he looks at the ball, and he calls over the referee, and he goes, oh, you know, how can I get to be ruling my club? I cannot do this. Hey, Tony, can I have a drop? No, 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 Seve, you, no, you can't. He tries this, and he tries every, everything he can to get a drop, and it's absolutely hopeless, and it me no good at all. And Tony is sort of watching him. And in fact, it wasn't, it wasn't Seve, it was Tony 
who was doing all this sort of stuff. And then he looked around and said, no drop, that's fine, my, it's, my, it's my ball out in the middle of the fairway. <laughs> and so he, d- he did him completely. But the best South African, best South African of all, which I just loved, and again I didn't work with him, was the, um, a guy called Simon Hobday. And um, Simon was a South African tour pro and he used to play a lot on the PGA Tour and he was known, he only had a limited wardrobe shirt that he used to wash in the, in the sink and just enough balls to get by and he was, and he would only ever drive. He, was, he, was, he didn't like to fly and he was powering through the deep south and boom, on go the lights and he gets pulled over by um, this, um, he, he was J.W. Pepper from, you know, <laughs> Live and Let Die. You, you all remember Deep Do South. Deep, and, and, and he pulls him over and Hobday pulls in and out gets J.W. Pepper, the, 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 the local sheriff, and he comes up to the car and Hobday winds down the window and, and, and he looks in and he goes, boy, I've been waiting for someone like you to come along all day. <laughs> and Hobday goes, I got here as fast as I could. <laughs> Which is just the perfect response. Oh, dear. Um, We should just talk a little bit seriously about golf, perhaps. Um, Two questions. Firstly, you joined in 2018. No one could have predicted COVID. How has... What's happened to the game of golf globally since COVID? And it seems to be in in fairly good shape, but there have been some challenges. And the second question is, how prep is going for Ryder Cup? And it's all coming. I mean, it... (laughs) When, when COVID struck, we all thought, actually, golf is the sport that should be fine. You know, we're naturally socially distanced. You are 150 yards over on the left. I'm 200 yards to the right. We need never actually meet if we do the call. But, you know, you, you, you could be, you know, you'd think it would. But in the end, of course, it didn't happen and golf had to stop. And I guess what it did is make all of us working in the business, so the, you know, the boys in the suits, do what we should have done for ages before, which is get together, how can we make things work better? And we did. So working with all the other tours and working with the majors and working with the ladies game or whatever else. And so it allowed us to get the sport back on, even with some of the restrictions. And that was tough for the players and tough for a lot of the players who travel in. From, we have 40-odd nationalities. And, you know, what was our greatest strength, which is playing in 25 different countries, suddenly is your worst nightmare because you've got 25 different health protocols, which are all just slightly different to make it a little bit tricky. But getting through all of that, and I think people have seen what is the benefits of golf. I mean, it's terrible to say because people have had such hideously difficult times, but golf is coming out of the, 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 the pandemic. Stronger probably it went in. People can see health benefits participation numbers are up, viewer figures are up. We've got Tiger back, which is wonderful. Um, And so, you know, in a way, the way the game has come together has been a really healthy thing, and that helped us get through the pandemic. In terms of Rome, there have been some, there's been some seismic moments. We, they opened the new golf course, which allowed me to sleep a little more easily at night. Um, And they built this beautiful new course which is uh, just on the outskirts of Rome. And, um, you know, golf is, I don't think, is their most popular sport. I think football ranks the top seven. But I think it was voted like, you know, the 16th most popular pastime. So you're educating a sort of nation, hoping to leave a legacy. So we built a new golf course at 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 a new venue. And we're now at the stage, about 18 months out, where you can start to enjoy the fact that you're within 10 miles 
of, you know, one of the greatest cities in the planet, Eternal City, you know, you, you, you can see the dome from the Vatican on the course. You can, you're within 10 miles of the, of the Colosseum and everything else. And so what it's going to allow us to do is to now look at all the th- bits that are going to be great about going to Rome. Um, there will continue to be the challenges of making sure that the course is as good as it should be and everything else that goes with it. But the reality is that, you know, the one thing that we know is the players, bless them, always seem to deliver inside the ropes. And if we can build a great experience by being in a great city, as indeed being close to Paris was, and being in New York in 25 will be, that will, I think, hopefully enhance the event. And you must be pleased with the European captain, Henrik Stenson, who's a, 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 great, a great guy. Oh, he's a, he's a fantastic But for you to work with, you'll have to work very closely with him, I imagine. Yeah, and looking forward to it. We, we were with him last weekend, first meeting we had there at Nona, at Henrik being Henrik, of course, at, lay balloons on and all other sort of things that only Henrik would do. He will be great to work with. Um, you know, it's, it's really good to have a continental European. It's great to have a Swede. Um, you know, nine Swedes have gone before. He's standing on the shoulders of a lot of guys who've helped shape, you know, Ryder Cup history. But Henrik, and he is, you know, I, I'm, you know everyone loves him because he's so funny. And he's just naturally funny. He's dry wit and he's funny bones. He's a ferocious competitor. And we remember what he did down the stretch with Phil at Troon and holding the winning putt in his debut Ryder Cup at, 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 at the K Club. Um, but his ability to communicate as well as he, as he can, his ability to get on with all the players, he's passionate about bringing through the next generation, which we need. We need a strong young generation brought through for 23 and beyond. But I, I think he'll be, a, he'll be a great captain. Well, I think there's maybe in the audience and the crew, should I say, there's, there's one American, but I think most other people here, I hope, are European. So I think on behalf of all the crew, good luck. Um, Thank you. And let's bring it back. Um, this is the part of the show um, that I call um, the captain's broadside, um, which is I'm going to ask you sort of some series of quite random questions that you'll just do best to, to deal with. Um, so you've come aboard this beautiful ship, the, the Reeve Gauche, and we're free to sail anywhere in the world. Where should we go? Um, I've always wanted to go to the Maldives and never quite made it. I'd like that. I have in the past, used, gone in the past to Mauritius, where there is the most beautiful golf course designed by Bernard Langer, Elo Surf, and I wouldn't mind you dropping me there. But I probably might make it quite easy on you, because I do quite like going down to Cornwall. Um, and I played down at Travaux's, and I think I enjoy the bar probably more than going out in the golf course, but you could drop me there. Though, and, uh, well, that's a very quick trip. Well, we better be quick. So we do all three on the way. We, we've got to feed you on this voyage of ours, and um, as my guest, um, you get to choose the first night three-course meal. Now, I always throw in a cheese course, because that's cheese. obligatory. That's not part of it. What is the Guy Kinning's three-course dinner? Anything. Ryan the, sh- Ryan, the chef, and you is, will be there to provide the cheese if you've left any for. If yeah, there's absolutely. any left, you'll get a crumb. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I love I love Asian food. So I would love to have sushi and you know blackened cod or whatever else. I have to say I do, and it's probably totally unacceptable. I totally love Christmas dinner with all the trimmings, mainly just the trimmings. And I'd have at any time, but uh, that probably a bit inappropriate. Um, and then, uh, like you, I would normally duck the. Um, duck the, uh, the, the, the pudding and wait for the cheese. But I might just, the, my mum used to make, and it was, it was just sherry trifle. It was cherry trifle, quite heavy on the sherry. Um, or even better, 
and my gran used to make the best strawberry jam I have ever tasted in my life. And used to serve it in front of Saturday afternoon wrestling, Mick McManus, Giant Hastings, they're all the boys, with cold custard and a blob of, strib- of, of her strawberry jam. The best thing ever. Well, we'll try oh, and get some of that. Um, before we, we have to obviously get changed for dinner. Um, and although it's a pirate ship and it's in the 18th century, so you've got to slightly stretch the imagination, you get a power shower in your ensuite um, cabin. Um, so, what song does Guy Kenning sing in the shower? Well, as you know, because I have on occasions been your backing vocals. I have a terrible voice, but I'm a really keen joiner inner. But I only know the words to four songs. So it would have to be either My Dingaling, which I believe you've helped me with in the past by Chuck Berry, <laughs> Two Little Boys, if that's allowed. Uh, the, um, <laughs> I'm the King of the Swingers from The Jungle Book. Yeah. Uh, and Where Do You Go To My Lovely? Peter Sarsen. Very strong. Yeah. Well, you'll hammer all of those, I know. Yeah, no, destroy all um, of them. Do you remember what your first, uh, some, the, young, the younger listeners made on that, what was your first album, LP? Yeah, no, it, it just shocking. So I was so uncool, whereas all of my, all the guys out of school were going out and getting, you know. And I went, I, I, I was privileged enough to go to a farewell concert at the Jam, but I didn't appreciate them when I was younger. And I remember going out, what did I get? I got, I think I was... I think I was Dark Side of the Moon, Moon by Pink Floyd with, uh, 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 what was the Dire Straits one? Sultan Swing. I think it was a double purchase in uh, the High Street Shrewsbury, Menzies. And do you, remember, do you remember your first ever gig? Oh, I do. I, uh, yeah, no, I've, I've had a few. Uh, the first, I'm pretty sure, was Slade, Wolverhampton <laughs> Civic Hall. <laughs> And you, and you laugh because? I mean, they're fine band. Never Nobby the Boys. Great band. But no, I, I, remember, I remember that being a, a particularly high point uh, early on. Uh, and, uh, and your first ever car? Car. Now, that was... The, the old man did so well there. So I was going off to university, and he had somehow managed to buy this very old, short wheelbase... Um, Land Rover, which was older than I was, top speed, I think 38 miles an hour, downhill with the wind. Um, and his logic, which you cannot fault, was that I was then running the sort of the beer team, the second team for the Honourable Artillery Company, and he knew I wasn't very good. He said, but if you can fit all the pack in the back <laughs> and get half the team there, then you'll probably keep your place. And the great thing that he did was that it was this horrible old, old Land Rover. And in the factory in Willenhall, where I was still with my mates, it was great down there. And we, they, used to, they used to weld all these things and do all this. And then there was a paint run. And so, I don't know if you remember, but they were doing a lot of vending machines. And they always used to be that slightly off-white colour. Yeah. So, 432 vending machines, one short wheelbase Land Rover, go through the vending machine paint run. <laughs> so, I had this sort of white Land Rover, which I rolled off to university, which was known as the Great White. And I kept it for a year, far too long. I Your favourite ever car? Oh, my God, yeah, by miles. Absolutely loved it. Although, I have to say, incredibly luckily, I have to be fair, and this is to dispel you, I was privileged to be uh, Monty's best man. Uh, uh, and he, and I remember phoning my brother afterwards, going, he gave me a tie or a pen. And so Monty, bless him, and it was the day before the wedding, and we'd done a run-through, I was slightly late doing the usual on the phone, being a pain in the ass, whatever else, what kind of We finished the rehearsal. And, um, and uh, he, uh, 
He said, oh, we need to have a word. I'm like, oh, really? Do we? Do we, do we really? It's your wedding. He said, yeah, you come outside. So we went outside. And, um, and he said, uh, here. And he handed me this, this car key. And I'm like, novel. You know, again, tie or pen would have been fine. And, and slow to pick it up, clicked it. And he bought me, because I must have been with him somewhere. He bought me this beautiful Jag XKR. And I, all I remember, I was so churlish. Because I was so stunned when he did it. I said, I hope you don't think that means I'll lay off you tomorrow in the speech. <laughs> like, but, but he did. And so that, that would give it a run. It'd be the Great White or the Jag, which was a beautiful car. Um, you've done a couple of accents. Do you have any um, other hidden talents? I have no talents, discernible talents at all, as, as far as I'm aware. The only... No, let me think. Yeah, no, the accents are not very good, but it, I just, they, they make me laugh when I do them. The only other thing that I used to seem to be able to do is when I was down in Cornwall on the beach there, the kids, no, none of the ad adults would, would want to do this. They're all bored, they want to go play golf or whatever else. They used to love to go crabbing. And of course, if you go crabbing and you don't catch some crabs, the kids are furious. So I used to trail off with 20, 30 of these little kids. And somehow, I always used to find them. I'm pretty sure it was the same crab. <laughs> every single, oh, it's you again, sorry. But I never went back until every kid had caught a crab. So that I would say, sniffing out crabs on the beach. Well, before we go and change for dinner and you sing your songs, and I know everyone will be crowded around wanting to listen. Um, this is a pirate ship, and, and pirate ships are, are built to smuggle. And I wondered if there was anything in your career or from your life that is maybe your most treasured possession that is inanimate, um, I, I suspect, that we can put in a chest and then bury safely for all times that, that matters the most to you. And it was funny, because having listened to some of your previous magnificent work, Mr. Captain, I, I thought you might ask that question. And so I was looking at it last night, and it was, I was terribly disappointed. It was my autograph book. So growing up in Shropshire, where, as I said, not a great deal happened. But I happened to live within two miles of an RAF camp, RAF Cosford, and it had an indoor track. Uh, and I remember going along with my dad and with the autograph book, not really knowing who anyone was, and he said, go over there. David Henry, first one in there, you know, Olympic. Anne Packer, Jeff Capes. Scariest man in the world, enormous, had his own weather system, turned me down twice, and I still went back. I'm like, how he didn't kill me? I was being so irritating. But anyway, I filled that and got, you know, Billy Wright and got Beckenbauer, got Bobby Moore, got Gareth Edwards. I found a Gareth Edwards one in there. So that was without doubt. That would have been my proud... I mean, I would have treasured that. But the only one that comes close uh, now is another book, which is a, a history of... Vincent's Club, and Gav won't enjoy this, because Vincent's Club is a sporting club, which I was not in for any sporting talent for very obvious reasons. But it was mainly for all the blues and talented sportsmen. And then they needed someone to run the bar or do the, you know, whatever it was, the social secretary or whatever. So I was there for that reason. And I remember that was a fantastic club. We used to have so much fun in there. And it had got a little bit tired, so they renovated the whole thing. And um, they'd renovated and they'd written the history of the club in which I think I got exactly three words or something like that. And a few other past members have gone on to a world sport like Rugby. Anyway, that was enough for me. I had got mine. But it was all about the greats from the university who played in it. And when they were opening the club, and this was in, I don't know, 2014 or something like that, Robin Butler, Sir Robin Butler, who was the department secretary, stood up and speaking beautifully as he always did, said, we have a very special guest who's going to come and open the club for us. And he said in just over, it, he said, these are just over 60 years ago, this gentleman set off around the track, 
And if you rode in just under four minutes, which I thought was a bit of a giveaway, he finished, and in just under an hour, he was in the bar at Vincent's, and in walks Sir Roger Bannister, who, and I have to say, it, it completely bookended my autograph career, because I don't think I'd asked for an autograph since I was 12 or something like that. And suddenly I'm standing there, my 40s, with the book, the history, going up to Sir Roger. And he was incredibly lovely because, you know, brilliant man, done something great. That's like climbing Everest, you know, four-minute mile. Um, And, you know, you always go, I'm sure you won't remember. And, of course, they don't. And they always go, oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I had remembered years before having taught Mark McCormack into going to speak at the Oxford Union. And the guy who greeted him was Sir Roger Bannister. And, of course, he said, I shouldn't have gone on with him. Here's a man who commercialised sport, although Mark did it beautifully. And here I am, sort of, you know, bastion of the... And they got on like a house on fire. So I was meant to be there to introduce him. I was completely surplus to requirements. They got on really well. And he did remember. And, and he was lovely and signed the book. So I'd have those two books. They will be put very safely in the chest. Guy, we could talk for ages, and I suspect we will over dinner. Um, on behalf of Howden, you've been a wonderful guest, and thank you for giving your time and coming on the captain's table. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. <laughs>